You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. In our first ever episode, we're joined by Jim McNerney. He's the former president and chief executive of Boeing and has served with many global companies over his long career, including 3M, General Electric, and Procter & Gamble. We discuss his vision for economic recovery and what it will take to get there. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Jim McNerney, it is great to have you here with us today. You're our inaugural guest, and we wanted it to be that way because you have a perspective on so many industries and so many things that are going on in this COVID world. And I think you know you have a lot of thoughts about what's going to be happening on the horizon. Can you talk about what kind of permanent changes in work habits and in the future of work that you see on the horizon? First of all, it's good to be talking to you and it's an important topic and I look forward to having some fun with it. Your first question uh, is an important one. It's obviously impossible to exactly predict, but if I was going to present a theme about what might happen based on uh, what we're, the trauma we're going through today, it would be that there'll be an acceleration of trends that uh, were already in place but had not yet been adopted as aggressively. And uh, whether it's virtual teaching, whether it's telemedicine, uh, uh, e-commerce, look at the e-commerce volumes now versus retail, which is uh, dead, uh, Zooming versus air travel, virtual reality. The list is pretty long. And obviously, a lot of these habit changes are happening under duress now. And the question is, How will they become incorporated with the way we work and interact with each other afterwards? And I think the short answer there for me is that the extent to which continuing with some of these habits accelerates either growth or productivity for the organizations that are embracing them, either all or in part, uh, they will last. They will stay in place. But there's much, much more technology available to us now to respond and to incorporate into the way we work than there have been for the last few shocks. That's the big difference. As I look historically as an old guy, that's the big difference. There are real alternatives on how we work now. I want to bring my colleague, Scott Miller, in. Scott, jump in here as as you will. Sure. Look, you put your finger on an issue, Jim, that that it, we're all seeing around us, we're actually living it day to day, is that technology and applications of technology used to evolve pretty slowly. Adoption rates were relatively slow. And all of a sudden, we, we slam into this period where it's amazing acceleration. I mean, people my age and older are using Zoom. I didn't know what Zoom was before about, <laughs> about February 1st. And so these things are happening so fast. How do companies and firms deal with this and who will the winners be? Well, necessity is the mother of invention, first of all. Okay, why do we all know how to participate in a Zoom or a, or a team conference, WebEx conference, and we didn't really know how to do it five weeks ago because we had to? Uh, sure. Telemedicine, same answer. Uh, virtual teaching uh, at universities, same answer. So the situation has reduced that lag between technology's potential and its adoption, as you pointed out. 
And there's always a lag. And until there's some reason that you have to use it, it doesn't get caught up. We're getting caught up and it's because we have to. And then the question is, what pieces of all of that are we going to retain in our daily lives going forward? To what extent are universities, for example, going to adopt a hybrid model of teaching where some in-person, some virtual, depending upon the part of the curricula, depending upon the number of students that can be attracted and will pay tuition. I mean, will, will students pay tuition for a hybrid environment or will they demand in-person? And so those things have to be sorted out, but we now have choices and uh, it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount to learn about what consumers actually want now versus what they wanted six months ago. That's where the innovation will be. That's where the, yeah. the, the innovation on the technology that we're now using and adopting, that's already happened. The innovation yet to happen is how human beings incorporate it in business models, other institutional models in ways, as I mentioned earlier, that will either grow their organizations or make them dramatically more productive. That answer is in front of us. It'll be a very exciting period of commercial innovation. So, Jim, you're advising CEOs, you're advising presidents of universities and people in government and people in all sectors of our economy. What do you do when you talk to them about accelerating innovation? I think we're in scramble mode right now. So my speech is not too well honed at this stage as we're all <laughs> adopting. But generally, when, when the subject of innovation comes up, there's two points that have to be made. One is culture is critically important in any organization because innovation is a messy, inherently messy process involving many tentacles spread throughout the organization. It's not the lone scientist down in a, in a basement somewhere railing against the world, producing something that no one's ever seen before. Innovation is a team sport and you need to have a culture that tolerates the messiness of it being made because there's a lot of two-step forward, one-step back, three-step back. And the culture has to be tolerant of that process and not, not measure progress every six hours. You'll, you'll never innovate because innovation is hard work. And the other thing is that it's people-based. It's leadership. I mean, you, you, you need to find the best people. The war for talent is important. And if you combine a great culture that both encourages and tolerates innovation, <laughs> the sausage making of it, and a culture that's exciting for the best people to come to, that's the mix you need. That's the mix you need. Is it going to be harder to find the best people going forward if we're continuing as a country the trends of looking inward, especially in a COVID and post-COVID world where people from other countries may not want to come here or we in turn may not want to have them here? I think that's a great point. I mean, we were already in a period of nationalism, and its associated cousin populism before this hit. COVID has exacerbated it because it plays on some of the same themes. And the impact of that on things like immigration, cross-border uh, educational opportunities, which our country has thrived on, and we have been able to attract the best talent because of that. I'm seeing on the ground now many, many students from overseas, potential immigrants not coming. It's a very uncertain environment, combining both the COVID impact as well as the pre-existing uh, nationalism. And so, yes, I agree. And, and we need to be the country because our country represents what I said about an institution earlier. We have the best culture and we have the place where the best people want to come. That's our strength. That's what America is. And 
There's risk there, as you point out, the impacts and policies that we've got of, of choking that off. That would be giving away maybe our most fundamental competitive advantage as a country. Yeah, you know, at a time of panic and when no one really understood COVID-19 and what its, what its effects were, the impulse to do everything here and to hunker down is a natural one. But your point is, we were doing this beforehand. And, and now the themes of, you know, reshoring and, you know, making things locally rather than globally are with us. And you've spent your lifetime working in global business. And actually doing this and making improvements is much more difficult than it looks. Yeah, yes. I mean, we have spent the last 50 years, basically, extending our global reach as, as businesses, other institutions, multilateral organizations, WHO, WTO. I mean, there's been a theme, which is U.S. engagement globally and the associated supply chains, uh, the associated trade agreements, multilateral often. Uh, and a lot of that is retrenching the political wins and the impact of COVID and unwinding that the extent to which that's going to happen, and some of it will, will not be an easy task. Yes, it'll certainly be expensive. Just this morning, I saw an interview early about the company that will be making the API for Moderno's new uh, RNA vaccine. Yes. And the CEO was being interviewed, and he gave an answer that would have been consistent with uh, the way we all thought many years ago, which is I'll have a couple of plants in Asia, a couple of plants in Europe, and one or two in the United States, because this will be a globally marketed and an available drug. Now, the political wins, it'll be interesting to hear what the administration's reaction to mm. the most important drug that this country is going to produce, <laughs> the most strategic that this country will produce probably in the next couple of decades, whether the political winds will support that kind of global deployment. It'll be interesting. Yeah, you know, he's actually recommending something that would reduce supply chain risk, which is have, have multiple yes. suppliers. If you've got a single supplier, it doesn't matter whether they're here or someplace else, you've got risk. You are exactly right. And the supply chain is more efficient uh, if you're yes. serving a global market to not ship finished product from one place in the world. But this is a good example of that tension we were talking about between right. the pre-existing nationalism combined with the, the hunkering down with the impact of COVID. And I think we need to make some rational choices here. And right now we're in, an, we're in a bit of an irrational moment that we have to live through. And, and I think business people and policy people have to represent uh, clarity on the issue as we debate it. You know, something caught my eye along those lines. You know, every month, Bank of America surveys fund managers on a variety of issues. And these are people who control nearly $600 billion in assets. And one of the results of their survey really caught my eye. It said, the coronavirus won't bring the world together. Fund managers said that the most likely structural shifts after the crisis were supply chain reshoring and a rise in protectionism. Yeah. And I think that's the dynamic we'll have to lead our way through. But it's it's very real. It's very real. I mean, I think the administration, I think the political wins, I think other countries, I think the whole China situation, which is very confrontational now, there is a extremely high level of mistrust right now between the U.S. and China. And I, I've never seen it quite as tense as it is right now. We've got to figure out a way to get through it. But I think that survey is dead right. We're, we're going to have to be dealing with the impact of that. And, and some of it's right-minded. Right 
reshoring, it's a little analogous to the have an energy reserve in your country. You do want to have an energy reserve in your country. And you do want to produce the majority of oil and natural gas that you may need in a, in a wartime situation in your country. And that same thought does apply to some critical drugs and other products. That does not mean, though, that you give up a global supply chain, but you do have buffer stocks and enough flex capacity and diversity of manufacturing so you're not caught out in one place. You have to think it through. And, and there'll be a new lens to look through now after this pandemic. There'll be a new lens that shades a little bit more toward keeping strategic stuff on shore. And, and a lot of that's right-minded. Doesn't mean you give up <laughs> global supply mm -hmm. chains and global leadership. That's a terrific point because, look, the China, U.S.-China tensions are only part of the story here. Some of it is there, there has been a sort of a long trend toward more regional supply and less long-haul global supply. Uh, but also there's a reputational challenge that China faces coming out of this. Uh, and just interested in your thoughts on this as a sort of a broader issue beyond the U.S.-China tension. Yeah. I mean, I think we're looking through the U.S. lens right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And our political leaders are fanning the fires on China. The Republican Party, I think, will use it as the driving issue in the election. It looks like it, just the way it started out. I think CSIS has come up with some research that suggests that many in the Democratic Party feel the same way. So this is, a, this is an issue that will not go away. But, and the whole WHO issue, are they or are they not guided, mastered by China? I mean, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that the WHO is causing China to slow walk information, if that's what they're doing. I mean, I think China does that all on their own, but it is ground zero for this bilateral tension that is uh, being dealt with. I it's not clear to me that other countries view China as negatively as we do right now. And so uh, we have to be careful that we don't so disengage with China that we push them toward every other developed country in the world or developing country in the world and new alliances are formed without our involvement. I mean, I think there, we, we have to walk this fine line between appropriately confronting them for some of their practices and, and some of their lack of follow through on trade agreements and, and other things at the same time to stay engaged with them. I think there's, there's, there's real risk to permanently disengage from China, in my view. China and the U.S., there's a lot of complementary, not only trade, but uh, geopolitical interest and security interests that, that where engagement is important. Yes, and, and you're, you're so right to point that that commercial relationship, which is deep, there's lots of U.S. investment in China. Many U.S. firms are serving Chinese customers the same way Chinese firms are serving U.S. customers. But that really underpins the relationship. There's not a treaty ally relationship or anything like that. We need the ballast of the commercial relationship to continue to prevent this thing from disintegrating entirely. I agree. I agree. How do we continue in the longer term? with China with such tremendous amount of xenophobia against them. I mean, as you pointed out, you know, surveys have shown both Republicans and Democrats really have negative attitudes towards yes. China. That's it's becoming a bipartisan issue, even as the same time as, as it's becoming a political wedge issue. Yes. Yes. I mean, look, typically when you look back through history, when you get to points like this in a relationship between two important countries, that Ultimately, 
if there is a, as Scott pointed out, an underlying commercial interest that makes sense, if that exists, and I think it does between the U.S. and China, there's a lot of, lot of room for comparative advantage, just to use the old economic term. We have things they need and they have things we need, each of which help our uh, respective economies. That underlying commercial interest tends to show up eventually uh, after you get through some of the political debate. And, but I don't think that's going to show up in the case of China anytime soon. China is going to be a big issue in the election. I think if the Democrats win the presidency, I think that point of reconciliation may happen a little more quickly than if the Republicans win again. But ultimately, I think that kind of underlying commercial, we each make each other better, eventually shows up, but it's going to take some time. Because like I said, I'm old enough to have pretty good perspective on China. And this is probably as bad as I've seen it, just in terms of the relationship. What are some of the longer term implications on different industries in the United States? So let's, let's take education. There's long-term implications that you're looking at very closely on education with China, but with all the other things that are happening in a, in a COVID and post-COVID world. What are the long-term implications on higher education? Well, I think, first of all, there will probably be a shakeout. And people have argued we have overcapacity overall in higher ed, but there'll be some financially weak organizations that will probably fall by the wayside going just going through this, not, not able to get to the other side. That would be implication number one. I think implication number two will be, what is the formula that blends in-person, inspirational, all the things that a professor can bring with some virtual that parents and kids will want to pay for, at least as much as they're paying now? You know? And so the innovation here has to be about delivering a better product, not just playing with technology. Yeah, you know, the value proposition has to get a lot better. That's my point. That was a problem beforehand. And then you had a you had a slow demographic problem creeping up, yeah. you know, because there's just a few 18 year olds and there were 25 years ago. And so that's put a squeeze slowly. But now all of a sudden you they have this have this cataclysm and coming out the other end. It's like people not only are parent net worth down substantially, but they're starting to look at this expense and say, what am I getting? Well, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, I think. We were at a point in higher ed where some of the models were getting pretty stale and yeah. some of the cultures on campuses were not perfect, okay? And where kids and faculty were more uh, involved with political issues, identity politics than they were in learning or academic freedom. And I don't want to take sides on those issues, but it, it's all the signs of a stale culture. And I think this is going to be a good moment for education because you're reminded what's important, you know, when it's taken away and a lot less of the political stuff, a lot more of, hey, I want my professor back. Uh, let, let's figure out a way to get this done properly. Now we're talking about the right stuff. And the university presidents are talking about how do we come up with a new hybrid model that excites everybody, excites the faculty, excites the kids uh, that I can still charge tuition for that produces a better educated kid. And so in a, in a sort of a strange way, we're back to having the right discussion because 52 card pickup was played where everything got thrown <laughs> up in the air. And so now we yep. got to pick it up and put it back together in a new way. That's fascinating. What are some other industries 
that you are observing that have that kind of moment where they can reinvent themselves in a, in a much better way, in a much more adaptable way? Medicine, the practice of medicine, uh, I, I don't think will be quite as disruptive, but I think the use of telemedicine, the use of remote sensors so that you don't have to be touching somebody to assess them uh, just through your phone. And now that uh, some of that telemedicine, both on a diagnostic and therapeutic side, is being paid for, Medicare, Medicaid now has regimens that will and, and that was the gating factor before. I mean, you you, you had the yeah, technology, was, but you didn't have the reimbursement. In general, that's that's a problem of regulation. Okay? Yes. Is that it's almost as if the doctors ha hadn't noticed that the telephone had been invented. Years <laughs> <ago>. <laughs> well, because they couldn't get paid for using it. Exactly. And, and it really took a regulatory change to do that. This is a perfect example of that lag and the potential of technology and the application of it. That lag was just reduced overnight when that was the mm -hmm. only way to practice medicine. So I think there'll be a lot of innovation there. You know, I think things as simple as retail outlets or uh, obviously the airlines, anything consumer facing where, uh, whether it's putting on uh, plays or shows, uh, sporting events, I think there's gonna be a lot of innovation. And I think there'll be a lot of market share shifts in cities mm -hmm. and towns based on Restaurants that innovate creatively, make consumers feel comfortable yet excited. It's going to be a very entrepreneurial time and, and, and consumer-facing yeah, business. Yeah, the first, first firm that figures out what consumers really want yeah, will right, win. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know a little something about airlines and airplanes. Let, let's, let's talk about that industry yep. for a second. Yeah. What's going to happen with our airline industry? I mean, most people I know, in fact, everyone I know, is very hesitant to get on a plane unless it's their own private plane. Look, and, and that's that's understandable. The, the facts are that airplanes have the most filtered air of any environment you can be in. So I'm a little bit defensive on this subject. But, sure. but the environment of going through an airport, through screening, getting on the plane, getting off the plane is obviously a very crowded environment. And it, there's going to have to be, and you can't have an answer that says you can only fill the plane up 40% because the numbers don't work. These planes are built uh, against assumptions where you're, you're doing better than that. That's the consumer-facing side, which will be challenged, but there's also just the uh, virtual substitution issue. I mean, about half of air travel is vacations, consumer-type travel. The other half is business. I think the piece that may be impacted here longer term is the business piece, where we're doing a little more Zoom, where there'll be kinds of meetings where we already know people, where we're in the middle of projects, where uh, we've got a longstanding relationship with either a customer or a supplier. We're just jumping on Zoom is just a more efficient way to do it rather than jumping on an airplane and flying to New York. And I think there'll be, there could be some pressure there on the demand side. I think we'll see. I mean, the last time this happened was 9-11 and eventually came back, but we didn't have the alternatives, the technical alternatives that we have today. The business traveler is still by far the most profitable traveler for the airlines themselves. And so the, what you're pointing to is a, is, is a major problem. And how much will actually be impacted is hard to know, but it's, it's really hard to say there won't be any impact. I mean, right. we've been working three or four months. We're, on, we're, we're Zooming it right now as we have this interview. And it's very comfortable, you know, flying to D.C. and then flying home later tonight for a 20-minute interview. This makes a lot more sense to me. Sure does. And, <laughs> and, it sa and it saves a lot of money and it saves the most valuable thing, your time. Yeah. And that's the point. 
The stuff that will stay either drives a lot more productivity or a lot more growth. It's, it's, it's very simple. If you can put a new way of working or behaving through one of those two lenses and it comes out with a big yes, there's a good chance that it'll stick. So the future of work obviously is going to be different than we've seen it before. How do you see some of the immediate impacts in office culture, in the way people are managed, the way people work together? What, what do you see on that horizon? Well, I think we'll be obviously much more aware of others and our impact on others. It'll be more of a communal culture now. We're, we're in it together. And a lot of that's good. And it'll stem from the COVID situation. So I, I see that as a positive, more of a shared destiny in it together, which anybody who leads an institution wants, wants in their people. Now, I think some of the challenges will be when I think more virtual work will be encouraged and allowed. Office spaces may be a little smaller. And when, when you have this environment where more and more people are remote, you don't see them very often, it's hard to, hard to drive a corporate culture, hard to get everybody lined up on the same page. And as I, as I said earlier, corporate culture is incredibly important. All successful organizations have a strong culture. And when you don't see people or you only see them on the end of a, uh, a screen, and since culture is built by what goes on in the dark, Culture is built by, you know, informal interaction, by behind the water cooler. Hey, come on into my office. Let me, let me talk to you for a minute. Or by observation. Young people watch what the leader does and get, yeah. get a lot out of it. Yeah, Ex exactly. And so that'll have to be managed somehow, some way. And I, I'm convinced it will be. People will figure it out. You'll figure out if you have more people who work remotely. What that means is uh, we're going to have a four-day-a-month rule, which is four days a month, we're all together. I don't care where you are. You know, they'll figure out a way to work around it. Does it do anything to our ability to be aggressive capitalists by, you know, not being together? Well, that's, that's a great question. I personally think it does. I think it's a negative. As I told you before, I think disruption, innovation is a team sport. Uh, it's hard work. People have to be in it together, encouraging one another, uh, helping each other through rough spots in their own jobs toward a, toward a greater goal. So I tend to think that it would be a negative. Whenever I've seen innovation, it's not the lone wolf in their basement, as I said before, dreaming up something and then telling the suits they're all wrong. And then the problem with those kind of people is when, when they get to the point of needing help to actually commercialize something, no one's with them because they haven't in, involved them. So that's a negative out of the box. And we've got to think about how to manage that. To you, what is most promising? What is, what is most hopeful in your view? The fact that we're rethinking everything. Everything was getting a little stale in our political environment, corporate environments, some of our culture on campuses I mentioned before. And, and the good thing about a crisis like this is that it reminds you of what's important. The politics may be the toughest thing to eradicate and bring sense to, but I think organizations, when you go through a near-death experience, you get back to the fundamentals of what, why you're there and why you either believe in the organization or don't believe in the organization and or the school or the business. And 
you tend to come through those situations a little bit cleansed. And that's what I like about this. And there's not much to like about this. I mean, this is tough, right. but that's a positive for me. And I believe that to my toes. Jim McNerney, thank you so much for being with us on this inaugural podcast. You've given us an enormous amount of things to think about here, and we're going to be thinking about them. And we hope that in a couple of months, we can have you back to talk about things as they're going forward. Anytime, Andrew, Scott, good talking to you today. Thanks so much. See you soon. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.